I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Equality is not bad, for the record. It's just not always what we need, right? So equality is when everybody gets the same thing. Equity is when people get what they need to thrive and participate fully. And equity is not afraid of difference. Instead, it actually embraces difference and leverages it in a company so that you can be really innovative and creative and everyone can participate fully according to their strengths. How you day, how you day. That was the voice of Minil Papaya. Now, Minil is talking to us about equity. Equity is often confused with equality and they're both necessary in our society today, but very different. Right. And you're going to find out what the difference is in the episode. However, I also want you to learn from her as you can see how she got to where she got to. I think we are in interesting moments of our lives. Some of us are facing career shifts, life shifts, paradigm shifts, worldview shifts, paradigm shifts and worldview shifts. Same thing. But as you're working through this shift, you're taking on a new lens. You're seeing things from a different perspective. And I think it's very imperative for us to truly understand why we think the way we think. In this episode, you're going to have a guidebook for change. You're going to see what exactly it takes to make a meaningful difference and to impact meaningful change, especially when you're thinking about how you engage with society around you. So take notes, share the episode, and thank you so much for staying on this journey with me. Love you all. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of As Told by Nomads, and today's guest is Minil Bapaya. Now, who is Minil? Who is Minil? Minil is the author of Equity, How to Design Organizations Where Everyone Thrives. I'm really excited to dive into that definition soon, so we'll get into that. But she's also the founder of Brevity and Wit, a strategy and design firm that combines human-centered design behavioral change science, as well as the principle of inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility to help organizations transform themselves and the world. Papaya has written for the Stanford Social Innovation Review and The Hill, and has been... Uh, has been ah. <laughs> I, I got to do it again. Sorry. <laughs> um, welcome, everyone, to another episode of As Told by Nomads, and today's guest is Minil Papaya. Minnell is the author of Equity, How to Design Organizations Where Everyone Thrives. She is the founder of Brevity and Wit, a strategy and design firm that combines human-centered design as well as behavioral change science and the principles of inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility to help organizations transform themselves and the world. But she's not just someone that practices the work. She also does a lot of sharing, researching, and 
thought building. So she is written for the Stanford Social Innovation Review and The Hill. She's been featured guest on numerous podcasts and shows, including the Kojin Namdi show at WAMU. Very, very excited to have you on. Welcome. Thank you, Tayo. I'm so excited to be here with you. Pleasure is mine, Middle. So I'm always excited to have people that are, you know, fellow practitioners or people that are also doing uh, the work with organizational change. But my favorite nerd geeky thing is to dive into the why and what led you down this path mm-hmm. of creating this, you know, uh, you know, this career path for yourself. Because I don't know about you, I didn't see this for myself when I was younger. Yeah. And it, it became something that I, I developed along the way. So what was it for you that really caused you to uh, step out your way and create brevity and wit? Yeah, uh, yeah, what a great question. Um, like you, I also did not know that this was an option growing yeah. up, right? Like, I, I didn't know it existed. Um, my, you know, my parents are immigrants, they're physicians. I was supposed to, you know, either go to med school and if not med school, law school or engineering school or whatever professional school it was. And I didn't do any of that. Um, Although I did do a short stint in um, graduate school for psychology, which was sort of a compromise, but then I dropped out. So I don't, you know, um, <laughs> and so um, I, you know, I, I didn't see this, but I, in, in retrospect, I think all of my life has been leading me to this. I spent a lot of time working for nonprofits and I could never really get passionate about any of the causes. And while I was working with nonprofits, I was having such experiences of microaggressions or discrimination um, and would often try to bring up topics of race and be shut down around it. And when I think back, even when I was in high school, when I was in eighth grade, I went to the same school from kindergarten through 12th. But in eighth grade, you could um, sit for a merit scholarship for the high school. And I remember the essay I wrote was about the importance of diversity for a high school experience. Like the question was like, what's an ideal high school experience? And I talked a lot about diversity to the point that the principal of the high school said something to me like, you know, diversity seems to be really important to you. And in my head, I was like, wait, is it not to others? Like what, what is going on that this is being highlighted, right? Like I couldn't even understand that that was surprising to someone at like the age of 14. And through a variety of um, sort of circumstances and wanderings, I ended up at Cook Ross, which is a huge uh, DEI firm. Yeah. Here Very based familiar. right outside of DC. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and when I and I had done, I landed there after um, a couple of stints in the nonprofit world, and that felt like coming home. I was like, oh, this is the thing I could spend my life talking about and I won't get tired of it. Because even though I believe in like reproductive justice and humanitarian aid and all these other causes that I've worked for, I didn't really want to talk about it all day long or right. for, for many years, you know, like I would get tired of it. DEI was the first time I was like, oh, I'll, I'll never tire of this. Like, this is the thing I want to do. Um, and then I had the fortune of meeting Janetta Betch Cole at Cook Ross because she was a principal there and she became my mentor. And that just really solidified it because um, she's an anthropologist by training. So it was a really nice compliment to my background in psychology. And what I learned sort of sitting at her feet uh, has just made me even more convinced that this is how I want to spend my time on earth. 
I love that because I, I I actually had Howard on the podcast, uh, Howard Ross from from Cook yeah. Ross, and hearing his story, it, it's it's fascinating to see that you know you know a lot of what his legacy was is also ended up creating safe spaces for you because you went on to create your own firm, right? Brevity and Wit, which by the way I love. <laughs> I love the fact it's so brief. It's so brief <laughs> and it's really witty. I, I really. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so, I need to stop. I'm sorry. I'm so, I can't. I couldn't help myself. But the the the, the reason I love it is it's its focus. You you have mm-hmm. on your website you have strategy and design for change. Mm-hmm. Now there's a unique element to what you do, right? This is where I was saying I, I was going to be nerding out. You have a lot of elements of this this human design, right? That maybe not a lot of uh, DEI firms focus on. So what about your tutelage and, you know, (laughs) you being mentored by, by, you know, someone at Cook Ross or maybe even outside of of Cook Ross led you to say, Hey, no, 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 no. We need to make it more human centered and focus on design. Yeah, actually, I think that influence came from outside of um, Cook Ross or outside of my mentorship from Dr. Cole, because I had, you know, with my background, my bachelor's is in English, my master's is in clinical psych. So I spent a lot of time actually in communications and in marketing um, and saw, particularly worked for nonprofits that were good at behavior change communication. So that was really my strength. And then um, I was exposed to human-centered design or design thinking through a number of arenas, but most prominently through the work of Rajan Patel, who runs a nonprofit in Baltimore called Dent Education that teaches human-centered design to like Baltimore high school students. And he's also done this work around the world. And he has... He's, he was part of the team that created the Embrace Warmer, which is this darling story in the design thinking world of these Stanford undergrads who went to India and really helped create a medical device that's like a swaddle unit that um, can stop the deaths caused by hypothermia for premature babies. Yeah. And it's really culturally specific. Like they did a wonderful job instead of saying, oh, we need to start a nonprofit and get incubators all over India and create an electrical grid that will allow people to, um, you know, plug in their incubators and then do an education campaign to explain to Indian women why they need to go to the hospital to give birth. Instead, they're like, no, none of that needs to change. We need to look at their context and center their experience. And what they found was that a lot of mothers, even if they had the option of going to the hospital and putting their baby in an incubator, they didn't want to do it because for them, that's a scary medical device. And they're separated from their baby right after birth, which was very traumatic. And so Rajan and um, his colleagues came up with this device that allows you to sort of swaddle the baby um, and keep and the mother can hold the baby as they're held in this warmer that keeps them at the ideal temperature. And what I loved about that was that instead of thinking, oh, we need to scale Western notions, it's like, no, 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 we need to actually listen to people in other countries and design for their environment because their environment is not wrong or bad or um, low resourced or degraded. It is what it is, right? And, And so if we actually honor their humanity, honor their creativity that is much more culturally specific than we may be able to understand, we can come up with a whole new innovation that actually now there are requests from the U.S. for them to bring that Embrace Warmer here. 
I love this so much. And because when I think about what you've done with your company and I think about the way I approach, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility uh, and belonging, it like you, it, it's a lot from what's missing, right? For me, I have a background in marketing and communication. So storytelling, branding, and yeah. really experience, experiential elements of, of who people are and what companies are is important to me. And as I hear you talk, it seems easy to, to, to say, but it's not simple in the application, no. right? You know, or we are in this world, there's a lot of systemic uh, approach to keep something in a way that wouldn't allow for uh, marginalized voices to be centered just because it maybe doesn't turn the capitalism, capitalism mm-hmm. machine as quickly. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, 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 and though that, that intersection where one is about preserving a system the way it is, because it might generate money faster as well as pushing past the discomfort of actually centering experiences other than our own, those mm-hmm. two things, uh, how do you navigate those two things when you're working with companies or when you're trying to convince people about applying a new idea and a new approach. Yeah, I mean I think so I often joke that I'm not the DEI consultant if your question is why, I'm the consultant <laughs> if your question is how. <laughs> I love that. That is so good. Oh my goodness. You know what? That I I, I need to use that. That is so good. <laughs> May I steal that? Yes. Because- <laughs> Because that's what you mean. Why and how is so different. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> no, you know, so like, I'm like, if I have to sit here and convince you, I'm like, what, what am I doing with my time? Mm. Right? Like, why? That's still, in a way, I found that that's a little bit like, for me, that represented internalized oppression. Yes, yes, that's so true. Yes, absolutely. Correct. You know, I if I think that I need to convince the person who's creating harm that they shouldn't create harm. That's internalized oppression, right? So I'm like, no, if your question is how to do this, I will have all the patience in the world for all of the stuff that comes up as resistance to this work, Yeah. right? But if your question is like, why should I even bother? I was like, don't. There's like, there's like plenty of people in line who want to work with me. And, and, and maybe this is even just from like being like a straight woman. I'm like, I'm not going to convince a guy to date me. <laughs> right like i'm not doing that like you know so like if you're not interested in being in this partnership as an equal partner then peace out because there are plenty of people who are peace yeah <laughs> uh no beautiful i love that well that, that leads us to to you know how again you know you wrote a book on how essentially the book is called equity what were you hoping to achieve here because you know equity book here, I'm sure has a lot of goals in mind, but what, what led you down the process of figuring out the idea where you wanted to design organizations where everyone thrives? Yeah. I mean, I think I've always, um, not always, I think there were some formative experiences in my twenties and thirties that made me see the system more clearly and how it was rigged. And So I became really obsessed with that. And I became, because I also, you know, I come from a culture and a family that's really into self-improvement. And I started to realize the the limits of self-improvement when you're in a system that's working against you, Mm. right? And so I was always sort of thinking about those things. Uh, But then I married a firefighter and paramedic who I joke is like, is in a profession that's the opposite of DEI some days. <laughs> like, um, 
And what I realized in talking to him is that while I may be comfortable and even enthralled by a one hour conversation on gender fluidity, he is not. And yet at the same time, he did all of the housework while I wrote this book. Wow. Right. Like he was never threatened by the fact that I made more money. He was never threatened by the fact that like my career is a big part of my life. Of course. And so exactly. he's able to live those principles without caring about the, without engaging in the conversation so much. And so when, what that really led to is like, okay, then how do we make all of these ideals practical? Because what I really think is the Achilles heel of a lot of this work um, and a lot of the work, I think, for liberation and social justice is intellectual snobbery. <laughs> like, if you cannot explain this to my mother, then, like, we're dead in the water. Yeah. Because my mom's on your side and you're using words that she, like, my mom has, like, a medical degree and speaks four languages. And still, people use words um, that my mother wouldn't understand. And I was like, well, then what are you like, we're losing people who are easy wins. And then of course we're going to lose the other side. And what I think people who, um, advance ideas of oppression are actually quite good at is making sure that they, um, the people who have been made to feel intellectually inferior have a place and a sense of belonging. Yeah. And so I was like, no, we, we got to make this practical and we got to make it that you don't need to have a PhD to be an inclusive person. You know, this is true. This is true. And, and, and that's what even people were saying about your book. I was, I was looking through reviews cause I love doing that. You know, I've, I've been, through, I've been through the process and, and that praise element. I'm, I'm always curious about when, you know, people praise the book because, you could always tell the caliber of the people by uh, the titles in the end. And they also say, Give me, can you get a, a short blurb for the book? <laughs> and then I'm seeing a Nobel uh, Peace Prize laureate from in Jody Williams. I'm seeing Dan Heath, co-author of Switch, which is which really good book. Keith Woods, Chief Diversity Officer, NPR. And they're all talking about your ability to be engaging and to draw, you, you know, John Adder says your ability to draw the right amount of authoritative research engaging examples and personal experiences, which you just said in many of the fields that we've been in the uh, superiority complex <laughs> that can come from how many words you can weave into a sentence yeah. when you're trying to explain a process can be alien and can feel like you're creating a chasm. It can feel like you're snobbing, you're, you're snob, mm -hmm. you're snob, basically you're looking down on other people. And I, I love the fact that you're calling that out because as I was observing the pandemic, you know, as we've still uh, still in the pandemic, unfortunately, but as I was observing what was happening at the beginning of the pandemic, you, you could start to see a lot of what, what, what would go on if people try to say things to distance people. The elections was going on, was going mm -hmm. on. We had that. We had the pandemic and doctors trying to explain certain things to different people. And we had people trying to pit people against each other based on identities, whether it's with mm -hmm. anti-Blackness, anti-Asian violence, mm -hmm. um, you know, same thing with South Asian. And I just kept saying to myself, you all are basically saying the same thing, but you don't <laughs> want to listen because you're so focused on whatever vocabulary you want to put in there. Yeah. And it's so interesting here you say that. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a, well, I, there's a whole chapter on communications that the first section, I, the subhead is like, you know, if race is language, uh, caste is grammar. 
that we get so focused on word choice instead of the structure and tone of what we're saying, right? And, wow. and when we do that, we, we weaponize words in that way, you know? And so while I do think word choice is important, I don't think it matters more than the structure and tone of what we're saying, you know, that we got to give room for people to get the words wrong, especially when we know that they're, they mean well, and if we need to correct them, how can we do so gently and not in a way that makes them feel inferior or shuts them down or shuts the conversation down. And that's really, I mean, and I'm not talking about um, if somebody says something egregious and you want to shut it down. That's fine by my book, but I'm saying when people make minor mistakes and we're all trying to one up each other on how woke we are. And I was like, what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. It becomes a competition of, uh, uh, you know, virtual signaling. Yeah. yeah. And who is more performative Mm -hmm. and the performance of equity performance Mm -hmm. of, of inclusion is more hurtful than the application of Mm -hmm. equity and inclusion. And uh, I often fear that the people who know the right words to say (laughs) end up, uh, you know, forgetting who they need to center. Yeah. 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 Huh. Yo, so equity in the workplace about designing a system of culture and organization so that everyone has an equal shot. People are reading this saying, what is equity? I thought that was equality. What are you talking about? <laughs> what do you say to that? Yeah. So um, equality is not bad for the record. It's just not always what we need. Right. So I sort of explain it as, you know, e- equality is when everybody gets the same thing. Yes. Equity is when people get what they need to thrive and participate fully. And equity is not afraid of difference. Instead, it actually embraces difference and leverages it in a company so that you can be really innovative and creative and everyone can participate fully according to their strengths, right? It allows people to play to their strengths instead of this fallacy that somehow we can be the ideal employee that all has the same, like some sort of Stepford Wife version of employees that we all think is like, that's not even possible, right? So equity is saying like, listen, Difference is part of the human experience. And so instead of pretending it doesn't exist, we're going to leverage it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, that, and again, like I said, equality is sometimes the right thing. So what I say is that, you know, in the LGBT movement, there was a push for marriage equality. Because at some, you know, in the early 2000s, there was a rise of civil unions, which was an alternative form of partnership Um, that was different from marriage. And some LGBT groups were really pushing that. And that would have been somewhat of an equitable approach, right? A different institution for a different type of sexual orientation or couple. But what the LGBT community said is like, no, we won't really get the full protections that we need unless we have marriage equality, right? So equality was the thing that allowed for more justice in that instance. At the same time, when we're thinking about schooling, right, equity um, makes it possible that if your child has a learning disorder, they can have extra time with a teacher or with a tutor in order to learn how to read at the level of their peers, right? That like we are, we are investing differential resources based on the needs um, of different students, 
right? Mm -hmm. And we should be able to do the same thing in the employee workplace. And what that really gets at is that equity well practice gets us equal access to opportunity. That's what we're going for. So equity allows for equality in access to opportunity. Just wanted to stop by here before we get back to the episode. I wanted to let you all know that I do have a collective for people who are interested in developing their cultural competency skills, becoming more anti-racist. And it's a resource of things that you can do with your family, with your school, with yourself to work through your individual journey to become a better culturally competent leader. It's called UID Collective, and the link is in the show notes, but it's a mix of courses, it's a mix of resources, things you can download, and all you need to do is sign up as a member. It's a monthly membership. I'd love for you to check it out, use it with your friends, use it with your family, use it with yourself, okay? The link is in the show notes. It's called UID Collective, and it's for those of you that want to improve your cultural competency skills. Back to the episode. And, and you cover that a lot. I mean, first of all, I would love for you to expand on what it was like for you growing up as an immigrant, because I believe you came in as, a, as an immigrant, but you also encountered part of what you, you've defined as part of the system, the model minority myth, right? So people yeah. of Indian descent, South Asian or Asian descent yeah. had to have a, a, a sense of standard that it was the model minority, but I'd love to hear from your words what that was like growing up and how you decided to break out yeah. of that construct. Yeah. So my parents were immigrants to this country. Um, I was born and raised. Ah, in you New- were, yeah, you were born. <laughs> I was born yeah. and raised in New York. Yeah. Um, but my parents came to this country in 1976 with $20, because that's all you could bring in at the time, one suitcase. And my mother was pregnant with me. And they found their way to Greenpoint, Brooklyn, where they both had medical residencies lined up, uh, which was quite a culture shock. Uh, New York at the time was at the height of financial mismanagement and a very racist war on crime, um, which, you know, led to this sort of atmosphere of almost civil war in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. And my father, who had done a residency in England, uh, a surgical residency talks about how he saw more gunshot wounds in one night in the ER than he had seen in four years of surgical residency in England. And my mother slept on a fl- sleeping bag on the floor for months until I was born and would talk about how almost half of the medical residents were mugged walking from one hospital building to the other because so many people who had a, who were living with addiction had been pushed to the edges of society instead of invited into the hospital for treatment. And so they were able to like make their way out of that into the greener suburbs of Staten Island. They were able to buy a house and an office building and start a private practice. They sent their two kids to school debt-free. They contributed to their communities. My father even made New York Magazine's list of best doctors like eight times or something. Wow. Yeah. Um, And by all outward experiences, like outward appearances, that looks like the American dream. Right. And it is fundamentally, but that would be a disingenuous way to tell that story, (laughs) because if we zoom out, um, there are points in which the system played a role in their success. And what I mean by that is that the reason they were able to come here in 1976 is because in 1965, the civil rights movement, which was, you know, really organized and driven by black women and black men as well, um, advocated for the passage of the Immigration Act, which changed the immigration laws in this country. 
Before 1965, this country, the United States, had a law that said that visas and green cards would be distributed according to, in order to preserve the homogeneity of North America, meaning the white majority. It was explicit. In 1965, that act changed the laws to say that we would hand out visas and green cards according to family ties to people existing in this country or labor needs. And in the 60s and 70s, there was a perceived doctor shortage in the country, which is why um, the U.S. immigration system began to take advantage of socialized education in other countries and import doctors here. Right. <laughs> so even in the passage of the Immigration Act, which is an act of inclusion and, equal and equity, there were other inequities that developed. Right. Because systems of oppression evolve which is why this work is always something that we have to steward and never something that's over. And so what that did is like my parents who came from very humble beginnings in India were able to go to medical school for something like $50 a semester. Oh, wow. And so they wow. were, because India has socialized education, right? In the US, we fund our education system according to property taxes, which is completely bonkers it if you go wild. talk to anybody in any other country, right? It's wild, it is yeah. totally wild. It only yeah. keeps the rich richer and the poor poorer, right? Um, every other country tends to have a general tax revenue and then fund, they distribute it per capita, not per zip code. <laughs> so like, it's completely bizarre, right? But then what happens is we come to these countries, you know, people like my parents come to these countries with their debt-free education and their medical degrees, which they would not have been allowed in if they didn't have a medical degree or not as many of them without medical degrees or professional degrees. And they're able to do well through their hard work and the fact that they have these sort of advantages in their favor. And then what really gets my goat is then we're held as a model minority. That like, look at how, how, how they came with nothing and they worked hard. But I firmly, firmly believe that if you provided socialized education to all of the people in this country, you would have just as many U.S. born citizens with poor parents and dark skin who become doctors as you do in the Indian diaspora. And yeah. so it's a straw man argument when they hold us up as an Asian, uh, hold Asians up as a model minority, because yeah. it's really a tool of white supremacy to divide and conquer and to it get is. us to hate each other. That's right. That divide and conquer mentality is also one that was used in colonization. Right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and I know you talk about that as well, but there are multiple forms of colonization where the, the, the goal seems to be to cause division amongst people that look like you and me mm -hmm. by holding a, a narrative mm -hmm. that is completely false, but has a lot of strong, straw man arguments and then gaslighting. Right. Yeah. Making, making you making you question your reality, because if someone can cause you to question what your idea of success is and, and limited based on, you know, a yeah. doctor, lawyer, engineer uh, or failure as the Nigerian as a joke that we have in Nigeria, which is also problematic. But you then become, you know, you then become easier to manipulate. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and so that you're doing the work for them. But it's also all part of white supremacy. Interesting enough. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it is a really vicious form of gaslighting when they when they do that. And um, and it's and they hide it. You know, the the the, um, the the trick is if you make it invisible, it's harder to change. Yes. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yes. Right? Exactly. You know? 100 percent uh and then you know we, we you know we don't we can't even we don't have enough time to get into how that feeds your biases and leads to prejudices and, and all those things but mm-hmm. yes it's it's, <laughs> it's a huge part of that ah there's so much to pack here but <laughs> if, you, if you want to know more the book is called equity how to design organizations where everyone thrives and we'll make sure to put that in the show notes but, but i also wanted to, to talk to you about you know, create creative aspects and i'm a yeah creative professional as well. And I'm curious from your perspective, as you've started to see where we're going now, mm-hmm. you know, post COVID, hopefully, mm-hmm. uh, what do you think about creative professionals and the opportunity that exists to paint a world that is more equitable for the audiences and their customers? Yeah. I mean, I have this line in my book. So Mazarin Banaji refers to bias as a thumbprint of culture on the brain. Yes. And I say, if, if that's true, then media are the ink pad, right? I agree. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> like media is the thing encoding most of our biases, right? So what, like media is an exceptionally powerful, um, I want to say medium, but that's not, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a powerful format. And Christopher Bell, who's a media scholar, talks about how, Media doesn't tell you what to think. That's not exactly what it does. It tells you what to think about. It it gets your attention. It focuses your attention. And so if you're thinking about X, you can't think about Y. And if you're thinking about Y, then you're going to totally miss A, B, and C, right? Like it gets you to focus on certain things. And so um, how creative professionals use media determines how we as a society think, like what we spend our days thinking about. And then it, it also uh, determines what implicit biases we allow to form in our heads. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well um, and so I think that creative professionals have a huge role to play. And that's, and that's a little bit counter to what I think most creative professionals are taught, particularly artists, um, and I find I struggle with this with particularly film and television sometimes because mm. I think they've been taught, well, it's art and I'm allowed self-expression. I was like, you are. I'm not going to argue with that. But you like I think it's time that all media looks at a dual bottom line that it's not just commercial success. But then what is your actual impact on society? 
What are the takeaway messages that people leave with? And that you start measuring that to inform your art. It doesn't mean you have to change it. It doesn't mean you can't explore the same themes, but maybe you shift in your storytelling because, you know, my husband's like a big fan of like the Sopranos or something or like, I mean, also the wire, which is, which is a good show on some level, but like my beef with the Sopranos particularly is that I think it, it introduced this whole idea of like rooting for the anti-hero. I see what you're saying. Yeah. I see what you're saying. You know, I, at this moment in the podcast, you, you mentioned what is widely considered as two of the greatest shows to have, to have ever been written. But you know what? You know what I love? I love mm-hmm. your conviction in the fact that I get it for the element of the storytelling. Because by the way, those are two mm-hmm. of my favorite shows. But you're and I've never met anyone because I say this all the time to all my close friends where I'm not a fan of rooting for bad behavior because I think it creates this this I this culture of lack of accountability, right? Yeah. But no one ever hears me when I say it until <laughs> you said it. You're the first one to ever say people always say, oh like, go, you, you're killjoy. But when you say rooting for the anti-hero, and spoiler alert, I'm not gonna spoil the surprise you, but they you know, mobster yeah. uh, and talking about the family, and then obviously we, we, then there's the relationship with the you know, yeah. the psychologist. But are you saying, I don't want to put words in your mouth that if media is not aware of the impact and how it's making people think about these bad behaviors, we are going to be at risk of perpetuating more of these type of behaviors that we're portraying in the interest of art. Yeah. So media absolutely encodes behavior. There's a whole thing called social learning theory that we, that I, um, Sesame Street actually uses it for what they do. And the, mm-hmm. the question is never, are people learning from television? It's what are people learning from television? It's not an if, are they learning? They, they are learning something, right? Yes. And my, my sort of my, my beef with the Sopranos act, particularly if we get back to that, is the, <laughs> the creator of it actually made it more violent as the seasons went on because he wanted to show audiences, listen, these are bad guys. But did that work? Is that no. their takeaway message? No. no. So no. you as an you as an auteur, you as a creator can have an intent, but you're not getting the feedback on the actual impact. And that this comes from our communications work, where we're found that like people can have the intent of saying something to advance equity and inclusion, but what people hear is different. What people take away may be different from your intent. And what I'm saying that the media space should do is start to measure that impact and use that as a feedback loop to inform their content creation so that their intent is realized. Not to censor anything, not to say that you couldn't have shows like The Sopranos or The Wire, but that the way you do it is informed by the messages that people leave with so that you can ensure that people are actually leaving with the message you want them to, instead of what happened, which is eventually we got reality TV and Donald Trump, and he's like the classic anti-hero, and we were rooting, like liberals I know love The Apprentice. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but for the record, I agree with you. But I, but I, I, I want to play devil's advocate here, yeah. just, just, just for the sake of the other side listening to this. They're saying, aren't you doing what you're arguing against? So if you're saying you're going to, intentionally mm-hmm. you know clarify that that level of intent they can say you're programming them for a worldview that they don't agree with 
right? Let's think of a conservative side. Yeah. You say you want to do LGBTQ. Like, what? Why are you trying to indoctrinate my kids with gender studies, right? Or gender identity? Yeah. Why are you trying to indoctrinate my kids with, with sexuality and all these things? And I can see it go all, all these ways. Yeah. Now, you and I align it in our your worldview here. But what do you say to that counter? So, first of all, um, I, I agree that propaganda is sort of happening on both sides. And I'm not for that. What I am proposing is that the, the people who are creating art get more feedback for the art that they're creating and it is then right. their choice. Yes. I am not saying this is a government intervention that you have to have a certain message, but I want you as a creator to know what the message is and take responsibility and accountability for it. Yeah. All right. All right. Hey, you, 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 you battle tested. You, yeah, you, 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, I, 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 I have to ask it that way just because I, I already I'm in enough of these conversations and I, I hear them all the time. Yeah, I'm all the time. You're like you, you try to tell us you're better than we are. Uh, but it, it, it is it is brilliant, though, because I, I love that you, you are highlighting this. And again, I. This is just a tip of the iceberg. If you want more, make sure please click on the, on the link in the show notes. I, I, I'm curious now, now that you've put the book out there, because this isn't a, this is a creative element. You're actually doing what you practice. You're, 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 you're saying everything that you're saying you're going to do. You've worked at workplaces. You're mm. putting out a form of media. Yeah. You are on another platform right now, <laughs> which is about media, talking about media and you talk and you obviously work with workplaces. I tell people oftentimes that we either go to work or go, go to some sort of education institution and then observe some form of media for the rest of our lives. And we're doing each of these three things. And if we're not doing anything to make those environments better, we are only going to repeat the same mistakes that generations before have made. Now that you're, you've made those, you know, that intersection at those three, those three points, what is your hope with the book? Hmm. Um, so I think it's, so there's probably at the very base level for like every reader, I hope they walk away thinking and understanding that equity is practical, not idealistic. That this hmm. is like a pragmatic thing that you can do, um, no matter what level you're at, but particularly if you're in levels of power and that it's pragmatism that's needed, not idealism. Um, I think, um, on a, on a greater level, particularly for the company, what I would really love to do is do more work with creative individuals and with creative companies and really get into like, like we've done some work on building a DEI lens into content creation, particularly with NPR um, and uh, some divisions of PBS. And so I would really like to start working, particularly with like um, people who are making films around like, how do we sort of measure what are people leaving after they see your film or your show? Like, wh what is the message that people are getting from this? And then, and then how can we create more inclusive content? And how can we also create a more inclusive creative process? You know, how can we ensure that people are heard in the writer's rooms? How can we ensure that um, scenes that might be depicting trauma don't traumatize either the um, actors or the audience? Yeah, it's like I have a long-standing beef. I, the show is not supposed to be about my beef with all these shows, but like, it's okay. I have a long-standing beef with Downton Abbey. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. How did I was not? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're, we're, I know. I went from like The Wire to Downton Abbey, right? Yeah. Like, because Downton Abbey is like the perfect show that like I want to. I was like, I don't like trauma on television. 
I don't like watching it. I've heard a lot of traumatic stories in my life, in my career. I don't like being re-traumatized in television. So I was like, Down Abbey, that's what I want to watch. This show, this is a show about missing tuxedo shirts. That is the level at which I want to engage. And then season four, they had a horrific rape uh, scene. And it was clearly just a subplot because they ran out of ideas. It was, they were like, it's shocking. But I was like, no, this is traumatizing. And it was absolutely manipulated and like just it was lazy story writing and and poorly done and absolutely would have traumatized survivors and i used to be a rape crisis counselor working with survivors and i was pissed because i was like like i always say that like if i could work with netflix my recommendation to them would be can you create a filter where i can filter out all of the uh tv shows and movies that have violence against women because I would love to just peruse Netflix and not have to worry about ha- okay, coming across a rape scene. Yeah. And it, it'll get rid of 90% of the shows, let me tell you right now. And no, movie. that's 100%. That's true. I mean, these <laughs> like, things are a bait, they're bait, you know? They're bait. And I'm yeah. just, I'm so tired of it. I was like, I just don't want to see it. And it's always like, it's done so poorly. And meanwhile, there are, you can, you can depict lives that are defined by trauma in a way that is not traumatizing to the audience and i actually mm-hmm. think the show pose does this beautifully yeah, yeah this, is, this is just so wild to me because i feel like i've n- I never met anyone that views media this way the same way i do i have these <laughs> arguments every day with people because i i consume a lot of media because i <laughs> i one of my goals in the future is to show run a show and to produce yeah. stuff because I, I i completely agree that it plays a big role in how we think about things. So I'm, I'm excited to hear that you're doing this. This is fun. This is fun. <laughs> no, um, I mean, I think Pose does a beautiful job of being like, here's how this population is vulnerable and exposed. Yeah. And without saying, oh, let me show you them getting beaten up. Let me show you them getting assaulted. Let me show, you know, like you don't need to see that to know that, right? Yeah. yeah. Another show that did a, a, a rape storyline well was um, City on a Hill. Oh, I haven't Bacon. watched that show yet. Yeah, in season two, they have like a, a a character who gets assaulted, but they do it in a way that's not traumatizing to victims. I yeah, I'll be curious about that because I'm I'm I I, I the re-traumatizing is always what I worry about, but mm-hmm. I, I do hope that if anyone ever commits to telling that story, that there is great care mm-hmm. taken to to what the aftermath is and mm-hmm. then. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The recovery for that. So interesting. All right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> where can people find out your book? Because I, 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 if you're going to give all these things out, they have to be able to find a way to connect with you (laughs) because I'm sure they will want more engaging dialogue, especially across everything that you touched. Thank you, Tayo. Yeah. So you can get the book um, wherever books are sold, Uh, but we do have a website called theequitybook.com, which has not just the book and it links to 
Amazon and Barnes and Nobles and um, bookshop.org if you want to purchase it through your local independent bookstore. But we also have some other resources there like an equity toolkit. Uh, we have something called Minnell's Bookshelf, which is like all the books I recommend because I love recommending books to people. So you can check all that out. And you can also sign up for our newsletter through that site, which is probably the best way to stay in touch with us and what we're doing. Okay, I'll make sure to do that. And the last question that I have for you is the question I ask all my guests. And it's mm -hmm. my mission statement reframed as a question. So Minnell, yeah. how do you use your difference to make a difference? Uh I, I can answer that on so many levels, right? Because there's like the individual and there's a cultural level. Yeah. Um, what I try to do is one, my incredible directness is born from being both of Punjabi descent and a native New Yorker. And um, while that does not go over well in organizations, sometimes <laughs> if you are an employee, I found that that is exceptionally good for a writer. The more direct and concise you can be, the more you can help people understand the world. Oh, there you go. The more direct and concise you can be, the more you can help people understand the world. And it is also told in the title of your company. Yeah, you, know? <laughs> you have uh, a thin for brevity here, mm -hmm. but uh, I, I want to thank you so much for for spending you know as much time as you have there, and I'm wishing you all the luck with your book as you are you know you're touring, you're making the rounds because uh, I, I really loved your approach. I love how you're you're highlighting it and unapologetic about the systems that you're calling out. Thank you, Tayo. Thank you so much. Pleasure's mine. Kings, queens, royalty. No. Till next time. Use a difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com.